Hey, deserving listeners. Today I'm going to answer patron emails. This first email is from Torin. They write, in the new trailer from the Invisible Man movie, there is a line where they describe the villain. They say he is a sociopath. I'm not sure if you already talked about this or not, but why is the word sociopath still being used? From my understanding, it is not in the DSM. If possible, could you talk about what people mean when they use the term sociopath? In my undergraduate degree, we were taught that essentially there was a difference between psychopaths and sociopaths, and that sociopaths were created by society and psychopaths were more nature than nurture. End of email. Yeah, uh, the term sociopathy goes way back. The thing, the thing to know is that in my field, um, it's different from our other fields. Like when chemists talk about hydrogen or oxygen or carbon, it refers to a very specific thing, and no one has a confusion about what carbon is. There's no, you know, other authors don't come out and say, well, I define carbon as lithium, you know, or I define hydrogen as having two protons or something. No one does that. There's an agreement of language that is extremely precise. And anyone who steps outside of that is probably shamed or ridiculed or run out of the whole system. In psychology, it's different because our quote unquote science is imprecise. What do we mean by psychopathy? What do we mean by sociopathy? What do we mean by anything we're referring to? Well, we're usually talking about like a set of, you know, uh, uh, behaviors that are observed by a, uh, a subjective observer who will, according to their opinion, apply some label. So we have all these terms, sociopathy, psychopathy, antisocial, blah, 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 and each person, even if you narrowly define these things, as they often are in the DSM, you present one case to 10 people and you're going to get several different takes on whether or not that person has that disorder or not. So especially when it comes to these kinds of disorders. So uh, when and the other thing is, is you have a multitude, thousands of authors going back to the late 1800s and potentially beyond using these terms just the way that they feel like they want to use it. And they, them and their circle and their country and their time and history, it all made sense to them. And so we don't have a very precise way of talking about this. So that's just one thing to think about. The term sociopathy goes back to the early 1900s in Germany. Um, and I could give you the whole history of it and blah, blah, blah. But the in a nutshell... As of today, in the past 40 years or so, very few serious authors use the term sociopathy these days. The preferred uh, terms are psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder. Now, these are actually two different things in a lot of ways. They overlap in many ways. For some people, they're this. So here's the thing. For some people, psychopathy, psychopathic personality disorder is the same as antisocial personality disorder. For other people, it's different. For, for some people, it, one is, um, you know, uh, a subcategory within the other. For some people, they're completely, you know. Uh, so why, so since all the serious researchers and clinicians um, never use the word sociopathy, or rarely use it, I'll say, 
Um, why does popular culture and the internet and movie trailers for The Invisible Man always use the word sociopath? I've noticed this as well as you have, Torin. I can't tell you why that is. I don't know why. Uh, the only uh, uh, speculation I have is that the, the preferred term, which is psychopath, is too close to like psychosis or psychotic, and people don't really know what that means. Whereas sociopath, it's, there's not a lot of words that uh, sound like sociopath. So I think people are, I don't know, less intimidated maybe by the word sociopath or something. Uh, because psychopath is very close to psychotic, which is very close to psychosis, which is very close to psychology, which is very close to psyche, which is very close to, you know, all the other psy words. And um, that's the only guess I have. But yeah, everyone uses the word sociopath, and um, I, I wonder why they do that. I, I could see the makers of the Invisible Man movie going to an expert, and the expert saying, well, yeah, we use the term psychopath. We don't use the word sociopath. And then the producers are like, well, or the writer is like, well, if we use the word psychopath, you know, most of the audience isn't going to know what that means, but everyone knows what sociopath means. It's this weird dichotomy. It's like... Lay people understand what is generally being referred to as sociopath, um, but all the experts don't use the word sociopath, but they believe they have to. I, I think that it's a similar situation where uh, sound and space, for example, most uh, the general public does not understand or doesn't care that there's no sound in space. So when you have a sci-fi movie and there's exploding things, you wouldn't hear it um, unless there was some medium for sound to travel through, which occasionally there is, but not usually. And so uh, movies like Gravity, for example, there was no sound, you know, and, the, and um, but uh, if you, if you did that in a movie that wasn't trying to be very accurate, like Gravity would, a lot of people in the audience would be confused. They'd be like, how come there was no, well, I saw an explosion. How come I didn't hear anything? That was really weird. And so the, the writer directors will just create sound because they don't want to have to educate the public. What ends up happening is when you perpetuate that scene over and over and over again, a lot of people mistake uh, reality and they, they think that you can hear things in space. And so it just perpetuates its own problem. Uh, and I think what happens is there was some time a long time ago, someone you know went to an expert and said, well, what term would you use? They were like psych psychopath. They're like, well, not a lot of people know what that means, but a lot of people use the word sociopath. And the psychologist is like, well, but you, we wouldn't use the word sociopath. That's not a word that typically is used. We'd use the word psychopath or antisocial. And the writer director is like, well, but the audiences. And then they just keep in, inserting this soci sociopath word into all these movies and TV. And now all the general public uses that term. <laughs> and we can't go back. You know, now if, if anyone decides to be accurate and use the word psychopath, like the way Gravity actually, the movie Gravity, had no sound, it looks very strange on the screen. Um, having said all that, a few people still use the word sociopath in exactly the way that you talked about, Torin, which is that sociopaths, uh, the definition is that their lack of empathy towards other, their callousness, their mistreatment of others, their cruelty, their criminal behavior is learned, meaning that they had parents who 
uh, taught them it was okay to steal or they lit or they grew up in a neighborhood where it was normal to hustle or something. Whereas psychopaths are considered to be born with their problematic personality. And um, these people don't respond to therapy very well. Whereas sociopaths are better able to respond to therapy because if it was, if the sociopathy was learned, then it can be unlearned. Um, Also, sometimes psychopaths are considered more dangerous because they don't really care about other people in comparison to sociopaths. But I'm here to tell you in the clinical literature, we don't use that term. Uh, We don't use that distinction. Again, we meaning most of us, some, some researchers do, but in a, in my circle, it's kind of a hacky thing to use the word sociopath. It kind of indicates that you're, you know, it's like an astronomer referring to noise in space. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you, you've been watching too much TV and haven't been reading enough li- actual clinical literature. Um, so, yeah, we use the word. Now, you say sociopath isn't in the DSM. Well, neither is psychopath. Uh, I think it used to be in a very earlier... Um, iteration of the DSM, but it's not today. Antisocial personality disorder is. Now, you'll almost never hear people use that term, right? Because that term is, one, not used by society, and two, it's misunderstood. People think antisocial means asocial. A lot of people, you know, when they'll say like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm kind of a loner. I just stay at home. I don't want to see people. I'm antisocial. That's not antisocial. That's asocial. Antisocial is the opposite of prosocial. Prosocial is when you're doing altruistic, empathic, compassionate, nice things for other people. You know, when you're considering other people's feelings, you're being prosocial. When you're against society, you're antisocial. You are doing things against other humans. That's antisocial. So antisocial personality disorder is just that, someone who uh, typically lacks empathy, who commits crimes, doesn't, doesn't feel remorse, uh, is callous towards others, uses other people. Psych- psychopathy is a, a, a more specific version of that that um, is described by Hare. And you can listen to all my other episodes about all that if you want to. And if uh, you go to the website, psychologyandstyle.com, and go to the the list of all the episodes and just do a search by psychopathy or antiso- antisocial or sociopathy, for that matter, sociopathy, you can find all those episodes. All right, let's go on to another email. Actually, no, let's not go into another email because I still have more to say about this. (laughs) Um, This notion that psychopaths are born with their psychopathy and sociopaths are socialized into their um, lack of remorse and criminal behavior is a bit of a silly distinction because we don't have the ability to measure whether or not someone was born with a personality trait or not. So it, it's, it's a bit of a silly distinction that people think we have the ability to measure, but we don't. We certainly have the ability to correlate things. Uh, psychopathy and antisocial does seem to be at least somewhat hereditary, meaning that you have a child who is adopted out of a family, you know, say both parents have psychopathy and that child is adopted into a family where the parents are not psychopaths that child is more likely to develop psychopathy than a child child that didn't have parents who had uh, psychopathy. So uh, there seems to be that that slight correlation, but it's not super strong. Most of the people who develop antisocial and uh, (laughs) uh, psychopathic personality disorder 
are people who are traumatized and mistreated and have significant issues, chaos issues in their early life. Um, all right, next email, if my tongue will work. Okay, this next email is from an upper-tier patron, anonymous patron. He writes, I am a 26-year-old guy that has never been in a relationship. I've almost exclusively been single and done one-night stands for most of my life. However, last year I met a girl that I fell in love with. We had a very strange relationship, though. Our relationship was so odd that I've been searching through a lot of literature and videos on relationships in an attempt to make some sort of sense out of it. It started off it started off with us moving into the same dorm at college. We hit it off almost imme- almost instantly. We go from friends to close friends to friends with benefits and then quickly to something more. We start spending more and more time together, spend most nights together and text around the clock. I go from liking her to having feelings to truly loving her. Just when I thought we were on the absolute height of the relationship together, she disappears into the nothingness overnight. Her entire personality shifts and she suddenly is ice cold and she's distant and she refuses to talk to me. I figure that this is just her way of breaking up with me and I try to move on. However, we still live together and this is the start of one of the strangest periods of my life. A few weeks pass and suddenly her old self is back. She's once again warm and talkative towards me and it feels like we're back in love. We start growing closer and closer again, but just as I lean in, the same thing happens. She seems to mentally block me out of her world. She looks down into the ground with an almost pained expression. No matter what I do, I can't get eye contact with her. She seems worried and fidgety around me. It's sometimes hard for me to grasp that that's the same person. The same girl that can talk to me for hours every day seems almost afraid of me now. I try to talk to her about this, but it's very difficult. She shuts down, becomes very defensive, and often accuses me of things instead, such as being secretly interested in her friends. She seems extremely jealous while paradoxically pushing me away. Even though I truly loved her, I felt like this wasn't healthy anymore. Every time I see her now, I get a cold anxiety grip of I get a cold anxiety because I just have no idea what's going to happen or where we stand. After a while, she contacts me and asks me why I've been quiet. I told her that I feel that our relationship feels extremely confusing and that I'm currently seeing another girl. She tells me that she's happy for me, that she likes me as a friend, and that I'm doing the right thing. She then starts crying and immediately blocks me on all social media while at the same time moving out of our dorm. This entire story felt very sad and deeply confusing for some time. I felt like she was a very important person in my life, and right now we are completely strangers without any reason. End of email. Okay, so first off, I'm really sorry that you went through that. That sounds really rough to have that back and forth and then to get rejected and then she comes back and you're in love with her and then to have her look at you like you're a monster and then to have all that confusion, it's, that sounds really rough. So I'm really sorry you went through that. Now you're asking me, you know, what's going on here? Well, the first thing that I have to say, second thing I have to say, is I can't really diagnose, obviously, because this is a description over email about another person. This is a complicated thing. I mean, there's uh, the, the, the possibilities here are um, many, and to investigate those possibilities, it would take me a while to get to the bottom of, even if she were a client of mine. But 
to just throw out some possibilities uh, to help you along your literature search. Number one, it could be hidden drug abuse. There, uh, one of the things about drug abuse that isn't really widely understood in my experience is that when you're suffering from ongoing addiction, one of the strategies is to um, be mysterious, so to speak, because the person, one, might disappear for a while because they're using, and then they're so ashamed of it, they don't know how to tell other people. Uh, two, they need people to be at a certain distance because if, if other people get close, then they're worried that those other people are going to be, come between them and their their substances. And so people who struggle with addiction will sometimes, especially in the long term, and if they tend to be quiet with relationships in the first place, then uh, they can be extremely mysterious people who just kind of emotionally and physically like disappear in the middle of the night and then they come back like nothing happened. And it's a, it's a very strange uh, life to live with those kinds of people. So it's possible that she was suffering from that. The other factor that could come from drug abuse is she wouldn't necessarily remember some things that happened that, you know, like in the breakup time, she would be like, what are you talking about? You know, I didn't read your whole email, but uh, part of your email is talking about how she drank a lot. So there's some hints there. The second possibility is, um, you know, probably the best guess based on the description, which is just good old attachment injury and some sort of attachment reactivity. Now, I can't, tell which one it is if it was that even if i even if we could determine that that's what it was because there's a lot of different kinds of attachment injury conditions you know disorganized attachment preoccupied attachment avoidant attachment you know borderline personality disorder passive aggressive personality disorder um one of the things that you said is that when you see here you get a cold anxiety and that lends itself towards a personality disorder investigation. Also, the way in which she, you know, was, you said she seemed to be jealous and wanting me badly and, and would, you know, reach out to me. And there was a lot of love there and a lot of bids for my attention. And then very quickly um, pushing me away in, a, in an extremely um, incongruent manner. Some people with preoccupied attachment and with borderline will have that behavior. Not everyone, of course, but it could be that kind of thing. And it also could be a disorganized attachment as well. Essentially, what's happening is the person is, uh, due to their attachment disruptions growing up, their mistreatment growing up, they have a lot of reactivity to any sign of rejection. They also have a lot of react. They could have a, re- a lot of reactivity just to any sign of dependence. So as soon as they fall in love with you, part of them is very happy to be in love with you. But another part of them could be like, "Whoa, this is very dangerous." To fall in love with someone means that they have power over you and they will hurt you, and that could cause a whole other set of feelings of fear and terror. And so, you know, as she's looking down at the ground, she could be manifesting those those uh, memories of being close to someone or um, another, there's just so many kind of possibilities in this, in this, you know, number two possibility. She might have disappointed her caregivers growing up and they might have abused her. And so as she is disappointing you, she could distort the situation such that she's, 
feels very threatened and feels like you're actually going to hurt her physically because you're disappointed in her, even though you're, you're not going to hurt her physically, but she could feel that, that impending abuse is going to happen. And so, uh, one, she might be freaking out and two, she, she, you know, she might, if she distorted that, she might be trying to manage you by, I don't know, using manipulative emotional techniques or something. Now, this whole category of attachment injury condition and reactivity, it's not like she set out to be distorted. It's not like she set out to pull you back and forth. It's she's suffering greatly and is just reacting from a lot of that suffering. So uh, now, again, I can't tell if that's what it is, but if I was if I heard this and she became a client of mine, that would be the first hypothesis that I would try to test. Number three is that she had hidden relationship ambivalence, meaning that she just wasn't into you. And although she sometimes said she was into you or gave you the impression she was into you, she wasn't really into you, especially as much as you were into her. And, you know, sometimes she really thought you were cute and wanted to be with you. And the next day she'd be like, yeah, you know, this is fun for when I say it doesn't sound like that, but um, you know, it's a possibility for sure. Number four is there were hidden other relationships. This is similar to number three. And she had another boyfriend whom um, she was ambivalent about as well. She was kind of going back and forth between you and, and him. Um, that wouldn't be unheard of. It doesn't sound like that, but, you know, it's possible. Number five is that she had hidden relationship goals that she wasn't very forthcoming about. And uh, she didn't really want to be in a relationship. And then at times, the her feelings got the best of her going against her goals. And then she would realize, oh, I'm going against my goals. And then she'd break up with you. It doesn't seem like that, but it could be. The sixth possibility, which is another good guess, is trauma just in general, meaning that she has been traumatized repeatedly um, in her early life. And this has resulted in her having spikes of distress when she's triggered. And especially with complex trauma, if you have been traumatized by, you know, close relationships, then in your close relationships, you're going to have um, inappropriate spikes in, in distress. Inappropriate meaning that it's not consummate with the situation. Um, it's not justified. And she could have been randomly triggered by just being close to you or by other people, you know, there's all sorts of uh, possible triggers to one's PTSD and complex PTSD. She just being close to you could trigger um, your disappointment could trigger her. You not spending all your time with her could trigger her. Um, Her not wanting to spend all her time with you and you being disappointed could trigger her. You looking at her friends could trigger her. Um, all those things, you just don't know. There's just so many possibilities. She wasn't very forthcoming, so we don't know, but that's another definite possibility. Number seven is something about your behavior was bothersome to her and you're not aware of it. It's either something that she would be able to say if she were here to talk about her experience, or it might even be something that other people might even observe of you that you're not you're just not very aware of how you're how you come across to people. You know, maybe you're the one who's hot and cold and you're just not very aware of it. Um, I'm not accusing you of anything and I obviously don't know if that's true. I can't, I can't say, but I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That's a possibility. Number eight is there's a mood disorder 
that she had either some kind of uh, bipolar or some kind of rapid cycling mood swings that um, when she was hypomanic or even manic, she would reach out to you and uh, really want to be involved with you or reversed. Um, She could have in a manic state not wanted to be tied down to anybody. Um, people in different mood states can can really look like they have different personalities in a lot of ways, as, as you pointed out. It doesn't sound like that because there wasn't any associative massive depression or mania symptoms that you mentioned, but it could be. Number nine is dissociation or dissociative identity disorder. It's possible that you are encountering two or more of her alters. One alter really liked you, but one or more other personalities or alters did not like you. And when you were interacting with her and you experienced these, these different states, you were actually experiencing a, a different set um, uh, of alters. The other possibility is just general dissociation, meaning that it's not dissociative identity disorder, but that there were times when she was grounded and felt safe and she was in the world. And then there were times where she was triggered to be, um, you know, separate from her body, so to speak, and, and become dissociative. And in those moments, people will act quite different. Um, I've treated a lot of clients who dissociate in the middle of the session, and it can be it can, I can imagine that if you were involved romantically with someone, that it would seem very cold. They would seem very distant and cold and odd to you um, because they're, in essence, in the back of their minds, watching themselves um, behave um, in a way. Or another way to uh, describe it is that they're just kind of in a haze, and it's hard to be in love and connected to another person when you're in a haze. So it's possible dissociative identity disorder or um, general dissociation that she was experiencing. Um, that would be another good guess to investigate. Number not for you to investigate, but um, if um, someone were a client. Number ten, the last one is that you just misinterpreted her greatly, and that she never really wanted to break up, and and that you're the distorted one, that you're the one who, one, either misinterpreted her love for you or misinterpreted her breaking up with you. And and in the end, she was just like, oh, that, you know, like she's writing into some other podcast talking about how she dated this guy who was like hot and cold and she couldn't figure it out. Um, I can't rule that out either because I don't know you. <laughs> um, there's just no way for, for me to know if, if, if that's true. So those are all the possibilities. Again, hidden drug use, um, an attachment injury condition, meaning attachment style or personality disorder, passive aggressive. Um, number three, hidden relationship ambivalence. She just wasn't that into you. Number four, hidden other relationships. Number five, hidden relationship goals. Number six, trauma. Number seven, something about your behavior that you aren't aware of. Number eight, mood disorder. Number nine, dissociation. And number seven, or number 10, what number? <laughs> number nine, dissociation. Number 10, you misinterpreted her greatly. Okay, let's take a break. When we get back, I will have righted my tongue, and we will read another email. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, please, please do so by going to patreon.com. That is the wind beneath our sails. We depend. Wait, what did I say? Wind beneath our sails? Wind beneath our wings? The wind in our sails? 
we as a you know podcast team completely depend on be- people becoming patrons of the podcast. That's the only thing that really makes it so that we can take time away from our regular jobs and do this kind of thing because it is time consuming. Um, also, join us on Facebook and Instagram and join the Facebook fan group. Um, also, know that when you become a patron, um, a pretty good portion of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support. We, we've, you, the patrons, have given thousands of dollars. You know, by being a patron, we've taken a lot of that money and dedicated it to a lot of charities, which is really great. Also, um, many of you know this, but some of you don't, is that every Thursday, 2 o'clock Seattle time, I do a YouTube live show for an hour in which I answer your questions. People type in their questions on YouTube Live, and I answer them. Um, so if you want to ask me a question in person or you want to hear me respond to other people's questions, uh, go to YouTube Live um, on our channel, 2 o'clock, Thursdays, Seattle time. Uh, usually a few hundred people join us every time, so it's, you know, it's kind of a fun, fun time. You can kind of get to know the others there as well. Okay, this email is from an anonymous, anonymous patron. She writes, I have some thoughts on the whole meaning of life and having a purpose discussion that you guys had. As you briefly touched on in the episode, most parents probably feel like their kids are their purpose in life, and that is definitely true for me. But it goes further than just wanting my daughter to be happy. It's also about wanting to create a better world for her to grow up in and, even more important, help her to become the kind of person who will make the world better. If that is all I achieve in life, I will be happy on my deathbed. I unschool my child, and as unschoolers, we have an alternative approach to this. In short, unschooling is a type of home education where we don't follow a curriculum, we don't have scheduled lessons or divide learning into subjects. We just live our lives and learning happens as we go along. We trust our children to be driven by their innate curiosity and learn through their passions. Unschooling is more than just an educational philosophy. Once you start the journey, it becomes a whole way of life. I just started questioning so many things we take for granted in our society. Our culture is obsessed with controlling our children. We take it for granted that... Unless we keep them confined in classrooms and tell them what they should learn and when, make them stand in line, sit still, be quiet, stop daydreaming, and listen to the teacher, they will just run wild and never do anything useful. Why are we surprised when uh, so many young people come out the other end of the school system not knowing who they are and what they are passionate about? How are they supposed to be able to make decisions for themselves when they have spent their school years being told exactly what to do at every step of the way? I think the world needs more people who are curious, passionate, kind, and who dare to question things rather than following orders. I'd love to hear your thoughts. End of email. Yeah. Um, so my first reaction, and I've worked with many uh, kids and families um, many of which went to public school, many of which went to private school, um, many of whom went to some sort of homeschool or t- alternative, including unschooling. And I'm here to tell you there are many ways to raise happy, kind children. There are also many ways to raise screwed up kids. <laughs> um, the, there's, you know, the research seems to indicate that there's a similar bell curve across the different modes of education. In private school or, you know, public school arena, 
you have some kids who do really well. You have some kids who don't do, who do sort of average, and you have some kids who don't do well at all, meaning they drop out or they don't learn much or they didn't like it or they didn't thrive or something. And the same is true about homeschooling alternatives. You have some kids who do really well. You have some kids who do average, you know, just like every other kid. And you have some kids who don't do well at all. So the point is, is that there are many ways to raise uh, smart, kind, productive, happy children. And uh, we, as a society, often don't consider these other options. And I think these options are important to consider with kids who don't fit well into the public school system. It's also important for parents to consider, you know, for their own lifestyle. This anonymous patron has said, you know what, my purpose in life is my daughter and raising her to be kind and happy and well-adjusted. And I want to try homeschooling because I want to be there when she learns those things. I, I don't want her to be subjected to a bunch of random teachers who may or may not do a good job teaching her. And I think if we um, allowed ourselves to think outside the box, then there would be a lot more of these alternatives. Uh, like I said, they're not guaranteed to work better than pri- uh, public school, uh, the, you know, mainstream school, but... Um, they can. Now, I will say there has been a fair amount of research into this. I'm not an expert on it, but my take on the research is that it's sort of hard to study. The first question is like, well, what do you ask? Do you ask, you know, what question, what outcome are we looking for? Are we looking at how many of the unschooled kids go to college as opposed to how many mainstream kids go to college? Um, how many of the homeschooled kids are happy and don't have a mental illness as opposed to the mainstream kids. Uh, it's, it's hard to know which thing to study. The other thing is, is there, there's a lot of confounds, meaning that it's, there's a lot of factors that might uh, contribute to the outcomes that have nothing to do with whether they homeschooled or went to mainstream school. Uh, for example, wealth. For a child to be homeschooled, it's Uh, possible that homeschooling kids are more wealthy and have at least two parents at home, Uh, meaning that, uh, you know, in order for a family to have the privilege for one parent to stay home and spend all their time on their child, or at least a significant amount of time, then the, the, the family must have enough income from one of the parents. If you are a single parent raising five kids, you're probably not going to look at homeschooling as an option if you have to work all day long. So uh, so along those lines, is it the wealth and the privilege that contributes to the positive outcomes independent of the schooling environment, or is it the schooling environment? So there's a lot of confounds there. But the bottom line is, is that uh, these are other options available to parents that um, often aren't considered because of stigma. There's a lot of jokes about this, you know. Oh, you know, the kid's homeschooled. He's going to be such a weirdo. Or, you know, the, there's prejudice about kids who are homeschooled have no social skills, which isn't true. Uh, certainly there are homeschooled kids who don't have social skills, but there are a lot of mainstream kids who don't have social skills. <laughs> so there's just, a, there's just a lot of um, propaganda out there. And the, the, the thing that I think about when I think about this is like, imagine if the analogy is imagine if in the United States or in your society, there were three ways 
to eat food, or let's just say two ways to eat food. Eat food. You had McDonald's, which ninety nine percent of people ate all their meals at McDonald's, um, or just at restaurants. Let's let's not pick on McDonald's. Let's just pick at well, let's do McDonald's. <laughs> My analogy keeps changing. Anyway, so ninety nine percent of the people in your society eat at McDonald's. One percent eat at home, and imagine that world now. McDonald's would have a vested interest. Now, now imagine now again that there's a growing movement to eat your food at home, to actually grow your own vegetables or go to the store and buy vegetables and food and cook your own food at home. Now, we it wouldn't be surprising if McDonald's, who owned, you know, had a 99% share on the food market, it wouldn't be surprising if McDonald's decided to have some kind of advertisements or at least propaganda of ideas that McDonald's is superior to eating at home, right? That wouldn't surprise us. Well, we have a system that's uh, often paid for by you know public money, but it's still a system. And the system, the mainstream education system, if every if you have a lot of kids starting to homeschool, there's less kids going to the mainstream school, and people in the mainstream school are going to start losing their jobs. And when there is a fight for resources, there's motivation to develop propaganda, and you will hear. I've heard teachers say that homeschooling is actually abusing the child, that in order to succeed in life, you must go to a mainstream school. And that's just not supported by the data. Now, like I said, you can be homeschooled and develop problems, particularly if the parents aren't very good at facilitating the homeschool um, or there's some other issue. But like I also said, Going to public mainstream school doesn't guarantee your kid's going to be well adjusted. We all know that one. So you know, there's a lot of uh, pros and cons. Um, we can certainly imagine in this, you know, anonymous patron writes in. It sounds like a wonderful uh, thing that she's got going, where she's spending a lot of time with her daughter. She's, you know, the daughter is learning at her own pace and in her own way, and she, you know, she's passionate about something. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of goodness there. Other stigma and misinformation is that uh, kids homeschooled don't um, have opportunities to socialize. But uh, a lot of homeschooling programs will involve socializing. So you'll get a bunch of homeschooling kids together and you'll have a dance or you'll do a thing. <laughs> um, years ago, I don't know, five to eight years ago, a listener to this podcast was a teenager and she was, I think she was unschooled, some sort of homeschooling situation. And she came on the podcast and talked about her experience. So if you want to listen to that, um, you can find it on our website. The episode was August 20, 2014, and it's called Homeschooling, Compassionate Communication and Psychology Careers. Um, this young lady came on the podcast, talked about her homeschooling situation, also talked about her, how she learned compassionate communication, nonviolent communication. Um, and she wanted to enter the psychology field and that was six years ago. So I wonder how she's doing, but anyway, so you wanted to know my thoughts on unschooling and I'm in full support of it. I think it's, it's an amazing option, but I also am, am in full support of mainstream schooling as well. Um, there's just a lot of different 
ways to raise happy, kind kids, right? And as a society, we just need to be, I think, continually, we need to continually kind of assess and question the way we're teaching our kids and, and making sure we're not wasting our time. You'll often hear me talk about how in schools, I wish they spent more time on important things like emotional regulation and how to evaluate things well, um, how to develop self-esteem, how to protect yourself from trauma, um, how to develop relationships that are important, how to understand your attachment needs. I It would be so wonderful if mainstream schools spent um, you know, 10% of their efforts on attachment uh, for these people. Think of the benefits from that. When kids are properly attached and getting their needs met, think how faster they would learn. Think how dropout rates would go down. Think how, um, you know, their own parenting would improve. Think about how um, drug use would go down and interactions with teachers would be better. Um, and yet it's just, we have the data and we just don't do it. We just keep hammering away in this old model of, you know, you've got to teach these these hard sciences and you've got to teach language. Now, you know, I love hard sciences. Um, if I was unschooled, I probably would have spent all my time on physics and chemistry and calculus because those are my those were my passions growing up. Um, I initially wanted to be a math major at, in my bachelor's degree because um, I loved math so much, I, or a physics major, or a, or a chemistry major. Um, in high school, I, you know, you could take, you could, you had electives that you could take whatever you wanted. I took advanced physics as an elective, or no, wait, I took advanced chemistry as an elective, and I took, uh, you know, beginner physics as an elective as well. Anyway. So I value science and all that sort of stuff, but I just feel like we need to incorporate other kinds of things, attachment, decision-making, relationships, self-esteem, psychology, not as like, you know, a week of classes, a week of study in health class, but like a full-blown K through 12 every, you know, year there's, there's discussions around that. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'm now ranting about that. But yeah, homeschooling, totally cool. Love it. What a wonderful opportunity to bond with your kid all day, um, see your kid thrive. Uh, it, yeah, it's just amazing. Okay, let's go on to the next email. This email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, um, this is an interesting article about veterinarians and suicide. I'm wondering what your take is on this. Personally, I think it's really sad that veterinarians are killing themselves. Unfortunately, sometimes they are the very ones who set out to help animals, but they end up having to kill them instead for, you know, in euthanasia. I think everyone, most of all the animals, would benefit if animals could only be killed due to suffering that can't be fixed. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, I read the article here, and there's some links, and one of the um, stats that I found in, in the, it's a Time article, actually, uh, in Time online, time.com. The one line here says, the researchers concluded that male veterinarians were two times more likely to die by suicide than the general population, and female veterinarians were three and a half times more likely than females in the general population. So, uh, and remember that males are more likely 
to kill themselves. Um, anyway, the point is, is that veterinarians have an alarmingly high rate of suicide <laughs> compared to the general population. Um, they're almost, I think they're around the level of, um, you know, military folks. Military folks have a similar um, increase in risk of suicide. And now, to be clear, most veterinarians are not killing themselves because suicide isn't um, a very common way to die. But it is interesting. You know, we understand why vets, why, um, you know, veterans, military folks might kill themselves because war is rough and the trauma untreated can create depression and suicidality. So that one makes sense. But you're thinking, well, what about, you know, veterinarians, you know, people who take care of your cat and your dog, these people are killing themselves more. Why? Well, we don't know. But one of the speculations is that uh, they spend a lot of time euthanizing animals. One of the uh, most common things that they had to deal with. I mean, like you might have a cat or a dog and almost never bring it to the vet. And then um, the one time you do bring it is for, you know, to put the, the, the animal down. And not only is that tough for a, a clinician to do to euthanize uh, another creature, but the families are busted up and sad and, and, you know, it's just not a happy time, right? Um, you know, I imagine it's a similar stress if you're working in hospice as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, uh, OBGYN stuff, right? <laughs> I don't know. But the other speculation is that veterinarians in this article, they write about this, deal with a lot of student debt and they don't get paid that much. And that's something that I've known for sure. Cause to be a veterinarian, you're a, you're a medical professional, you know, you're, you're just, you just don't work on humans. You work on animal on other animals besides humans. And yet we do not pay the same amount of money for veterinarian services than we do for medical services. So you have a lot of veterinarians who spend, you know, one to two to three hundred thousand dollars getting through school and many many years and they're getting paid like twenty five thousand dollars a year or you know fifty thousand dollars a year at the beginning of their career um the average is something like ninety five thousand dollars a year which is you know it's a pretty good living but it's not but that's kind of a normal professional salary um anyway so it's not like they can't pay off their debt but it's not easy and it's not like they're rolling in dough. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, but so that's another stress that they speculate. Another stress is that they can be the target of a lot of hate, particularly in the internet age. If you, as a veterinarian, you know, like I'll, I'll give a personal example. I, um, my dog, my cat, um, I had to put him down a year ago, which was very sad for me. And uh, leading up to having to put him down, he was getting sick. And so I brought him in. I'll say, I'll spare you all the details, but I brought him into the vet for an emergency appointment and my regular vet wasn't there. And so there was this other vet and this other vet came in, did his, his examination. And then he sits me down and he says, uh, I, th I think it's time to put your cat down. 
And I was like, oh, really? Like, why do you say, well, you know, da, da, da. And then it, it somehow it occurs to me, wait, he's talking about putting the cat down today, right now. <laughs> like, he, he has my cat in the back, and he's coming out to talk with me. He has, he took my cat into the back. He comes out, and he says, yeah, I think it's time. And my cat was not at that point, you know. He was just saying, he's going to decline pretty rapidly over the next, you know, couple months. And, you know, now might you might just save all that suffering and just just pull the plug right now. That was a very upsetting moment. Um, I, I don't recommend vets do that because I was like, give me my fucking cat back. I'm leaving, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Now, he was right. I The cat did decline. Um, I don't think... I probably still would have waited because the my cat was my cat still had some good weeks in him, but um, if I didn't have a, a, a good grip on my I don't know self, I could see myself leaving the 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 veterinarian office, going on Twitter and you know hashtagging him. And talking about how terrible he was as a veterinarian and how he was like, going to kill my cat because he's some sort of sadistic monster. I was that angry. I was that upset, you know, because it's like, you're telling me you want to kill, essentially the way I was interpreting it was, you want to kill my cat right now. And even though my cat is, is still basically healthy, but you're, but according to you, the cat's going to die at some point in the future and you want to kill it now. Like that's, that's what you're telling me now, you know, it's possible he was actually being compassionate in the moment, but it certainly wasn't coming across that way. So I could have, you know, slammed him on social media, you know, on YouTube, on TikTok, or something. And then everyone, you know, cause there's a lot of people who really defend animals online, which I think is good, but you know, the hive mind isn't always rational. And, um, you could imagine there'd be a shitstorm on that that vet. Apparently, according to this Time article, a lot of veterinarians have experienced this or are paranoid of having experienced it, and it puts a tremendous amount of strain on them, which could lead to issues leading to suicidality. Um, you know, that's that's interesting. I didn't know that. It's terrible. I just I could see it happening, but it's awful that the, that's happening to vets. I mean. They're put in a pretty bad situation where, you know, they have, they're the, I mean, I've always thought about that. It's just like, how terrible would it be to be a vet? And, you know, at least once a day you have to euthanize an animal. I mean, that just, that just, oh, like awful, 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 awful. Um, it's awful enough to go through it, you know, a few times in my life. And I just can't imagine going through that all the time. So, yeah, I could see that taking a toll, and I could see that contributing to the uptick in suicidality. Now, what's the solution to this? I don't know. It's just so hard to know what to do about it, right? Are we supposed to have, I don't know, it's just like someone's got to do it, right? And and they have to be uh, professionals. At, I mean, maybe get the psychopaths. <laughs> Maybe this is a good job for the psychopaths, but, you know, this is a functional job that because uh, they don't care and it doesn't affect them. They're not traumatized by it in the same way. Um, 
but sometimes strangely psychopaths can actually have a lot of empathy for animals so anyway i it's just a hard thing to know what to do uh, personally i think a totally viable solution is that someone should come out with a way that cats and dogs can live forever because they deserve to so let's get on that all right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle, in which I read a bunch of emails. Wait, do I have extra time? Yeah, let's get to another email before I sign off. Okay, this next email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, my first question is in regards to implicit bias and racism. Very recently, there was viral footage of a parent conference at a school in which a father of a Latino uh, of, of Latino descent was speaking about his child's experiences of racism in the school when another father remarked, why don't you, why didn't you stay in Mexico? Whilst this example is more blatant, I'm sure some argue it's not racist because you're not saying go back somewhere and you're not using some, you're just saying go back somewhere and you're not using a racial slur. I was reminded of the treatment of Meghan Markle by British tabloids and how some public figures remarked things such as, I didn't see anything racist towards her, suggesting the coverage was just fine. For example, one article about Kate Middleton's avocado craving during her pregnancy was written in a very positive manner, whereas Meghan Markle's same craving during her pregnancy featured the writer linking avocados to human rights abuses, <laughs> though neither example involved a racial slur. I know you've discussed this topic before, but could you please speak again about what implicit bias is and what racism is and why some people don't see such examples as racist? Is implicit bias the same as internalized bias? And could you please help shed light on why comments like that clearly are racist? End of email. Well, the first thing I will say is that racism is a loaded word, and there's many different definitions of it. I, it's fine. I'll use the word racism in a lot of situations. But if I ever do use the word racism, especially if I feel like I really want people to understand what I'm saying, I will use other words, and I'll get into that more in a second. The other thing is you're, you're saying that race, you're, it sounds, I'm not quite sure, but it sounds like you're equating racism with racial slurs. Like, you know, racism with um, calling someone a bad word, you know, for for their race or something. Um, Certainly that can be a racist thing, but racial slurs are not inherently racist. Um, For example, for me, if I use the word gook, for example, which refers to Asians or dirty Japs, as I'm, I'm a Japanese person, you know, if I use the term dirty Jap, um, there's there's some context where I could use the word dirty Jap that would not be racist. Um, it's the intent of the word. It's what I'm trying to communicate with the word. You can also be racist while never using a racial slur. So it's about analyzing communication, about what's the intent of the communication and how is it being received. Um, so the word racism, the word racist has been thrown around a lot, you know, like, oh, Trump is racist and this person is racist. And the problem is, is that uh, one, unless you define why you're saying that, uh, a lot of people are going to discount what you're saying if they if they're just sort of hostile to what you're saying. The other thing is, is a lot of people don't really know what they're talking about when they're using the word racism. <laughs> um, 
because it's sort of a complicated sociological thing. It's not something that everyone understands. Like I said, if we spent 10% of our, you know, schooling on sub subjects like this, maybe more people would understand it, but, you know, we tend not to. So to kind of break it up, and this is just very brief, I could go on and on about this, but very brief, um, a form of racism is prejudice and bias. You know, you're talking about bias, but, you know, a larger term is prejudice, prejudging people. So a, a classic bias or prejudice is that black people are criminals or Asian people, Asian Americans are foreigners or something. Now, implicit bias is when you... It's unconscious um, or automatic, if you will, meaning that if you ask someone, you know, do you believe that black, you know, if you saw two people and white person, black person, would you be harsher with the black person and consciously and you hook them up to a lie detector test, they would be like, no, you know, I, I, I don't think black people are criminals. You know, why would I think that? Um, but implicit bias is like it's sort of unknown to the person, and there are ways of detecting that implicit bias. And the effect of implicit bias can be that when you're interviewing someone for a job, you you self-identify as someone who's not a racist, but you have an automatic bias against certain groups of people based on the propaganda that has been injected into your head, and it's unknown to you. Um, a classic example in the news is when police officers will uh, shoot a black person, um, whereas in the exact same situation, if the person was white, they wouldn't have shot them. So um, the, the, the insidiousness of implicit bias is uh, it's, it's unknown even to the perpetrator. So how can you fix something that the perpetrator denies exists and doesn't even know it exists. They're not hiding it. They just don't even know. I, as a person of color, would like to think that I'm not racist because I grew up non-white in an all-white community. You would think I would not be racist against brown people, and yet when I take the implicit bias test, I have an implicit bias that white people are more favorable than brown people. Um, that's not a nice thing to, to, to say. <laughs> I wish that wasn't true. But of course that's true because uh, it's even potentially more true for me because I did grow up in an all-white community in, in which um, there were many messages that brown people were bad. And so, you know, it's just one of those things. Um, you also, met, you know, it, you say, is implicit bias the same as internalized bias? Um, they, they overlap, but they're really different concepts. Internalized bias or internalized oppression is when we internalize the messages that society is saying about us. So if you're a woman and you grow up in a sexist society, then you're going to grow up uh, with a lot of messaging that you are not as smart, you're not as important, your voice isn't um, worth anything, you uh, should, you know, do what you're told, you should be nice, you should smile, you should always try to please everyone. You know, there's all these messages. And so people internalize those messages. And so it's not uncommon to have an adult woman who uh, internalizes that and believes that she is lesser than men. Now, if you asked her, do you think women are lesser than men? She's like, no, of course not, you know, e equality. But she operates from, a you know, when, when she's at a meeting 
and she has something to say, she, she might not say something because she's like, well, I'm just a woman. I should wait for the man to talk or something. Um, so that's internalized. You've internalized the voice. Um, if you're a black person and you've internalized the messaging that you are lesser, that you are not as smart or something. And so the voice is now, you now have a racist voice inside your own head beating you down. It's an internalized propaganda. So that's what internalized oppression or internalized bias means. Now that can manifest as implicit bias, but they're different things. Um, the other thing I like, so so sometimes when people are talking about racism or when I'm talking about racism, I I quickly morph to words like prejudice or bias because that's more precise. Another more precise racist area is a lack of empathy, um, a lack of care for other people. And I feel like a lot of the arguments online or in the news around who is being a racist and who is not, you know, oh, you're a racist. No, I'm not. Uh, what? they're really arguing about is a lack of empathy for other people. Like for example, um, when people ask me, and this happened much more when I was younger and it also happens outside Seattle a lot, by the way, um, in more sort of white areas of the United States. Cause Seattle has a lot of Asians, but I'll be walk, especially when I was younger, I'd be walking around and people would be like, Oh, where are you from? And I always knew what they meant because they'd look at my eyes and they saw that they were somewhat slanty and they thought, oh, you must have been born from another country. Now, that is totally innocent, usually. The person is not intending on putting me down. They're not intending on otherizing me. They didn't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a lack of empathy for the next you know, half Asian I see. They're just curious. It's just sort of it's just born out of their societal understandings and and they're they're not trying to hurt my feelings. But from my perspective, uh, it hurts, especially the 10,000th time you, you're asked it because it's like, um, motherfucker, I'm more local than you are. <laughs> my family, uh, half of my family has been born and raised in Washington state since the 1800s. So motherfucker, where are you from? <laughs> because you probably just moved here a generation ago at the longest. So where the fuck I'm from here, fucker. You know what I mean? You welcome to my town, fucker. <laughs> like, where am I from? Like, you know, again, the first thousand times I was asked it, I was like, oh, well, I'm from Seattle. Well, no, no. Where are you from? Oh, well, you're referring to the fact that my dad is of Japanese descent. Oh, really? You know, does he speak Japanese? No. Um, my dad's third generation, so he doesn't speak any Japanese. Oh, really? You know, it's just like the first hundred times, a thousand times I answer those questions, you know, I went along with it. But the thousand, ten thousand, you're just like, fucking A, people. Is it such a mystery that non-white people were born in this country? Is that such a novel fucking concept to you? Um, uh, you know, why? And, uh, you know, it just boggles the brain. Um, now, I don't blame people for uh, not understanding that based on the way our society educates people. I mean, when was the last Asian uh, person that didn't have an accent uh, that was like a you know, the protagonist of a American story. Um, we're talking like 0.01% of 
protagonists in a story are an Asian person without an accent and incidentally who don't have parents who don't have accents. Um, you know, usually it's even if the protagonist is Asian and doesn't have an accent, their parents have accents, um, meaning that, you know, okay, yeah, that person doesn't have that, but their parent anyway, just don't get me started. But um, so when people ask me where I'm from, it's lacking of empathy. You know, they are not thinking ahead of the question, thinking like, well, maybe this guy you know, you know, how many times does this guy get asked this question? Now, we might frame this question as a racist question, but I don't, I tend not to, I wouldn't ever use that term um, with, you know, people who don't understand what I'm talking about. What I would say is when someone asks me where I'm from, they lack empathy and they're sort of ignorant and they're inadvertently hurting my feelings. And if they spend a little bit more time outside their box, they would intuit that a question like that could potentially hurt my feelings. Um, so, but I frame that in the overall umbrella of racism um, because when you have privilege, you know, you're a white person, you're mainstream, you have the privilege that you don't have to learn that kind of thing. Um, you know, for me, for example, when I see someone who, looks like they might be a foreigner, I don't ask them where they're from because I know what it feels like. You know what I mean? Um, and there are other things like that where I, I don't know what it's like, but I've, I've tried to learn. And so anyway, um, another racism area is unfair treatment. This is, a, this is another big one. This is probably the core of racism. And so whenever I'm talking about racism, I will usually say unfair treatment because that's much more understandable and it's, and it's much more precise and it's much, much less confusing to people. So for example, anonymous patient, you say that, you know, Megan Markle was eating avocados and Middleton was eating avocados during pregnancy. And the Kate Middleton uh, stories were like, Oh, isn't it cute that she has a, an avocado craving. And then Megan Markle is written about like, um, doesn't she understand the human rights abuses that are, you know, uh, committed to get avocados into her mouth? I mean, what a privileged bitch, you know, that kind of thing. And so you just have, so that's unfair treatment, right? It's treating two people different in the exact same situation. And we don't know why, because we, you know, if we ask the writers, why did you do that? They're not going to say, well, it's because I'm racist. They're just going to say, well, that's just what I decided to write. Um, but when we see patterns like this play out through empirical research, like black people not being hired, because you know you give the same resume uh, and you just change the name from you know Christopher Anderson to Jerome you know Smith or something, the Jerome Smith gets you know half as many callbacks as the Christopher Smith one does because the uh, interviewer, the employer is like, that looks like a white name. That looks like a black name. So that's unfair treatment. We, you know, we can use the word racism for sure in a situation like that, but a more precise word that causes less confusion, it's unfair. It's unfair to that person. It's unfair if Meghan Markle is being treated differently just because of, you know, the color of her skin or because she's not British, you know, whatever it is, She's being treated unfairly because of her identity. And that's unfair. 
that's just treating someone in an unfair way. And I think most of us can understand that. And so I wish that people online would use these terms more, you know, or at least follow up with like, that's racist, the unfair treatment kind of racist. But people don't do that. They're just like, that's racist and that's racist. And it's just like the word racism is applied to just like every possible concept within um, race uh, bias and prejudice and treatments and like, you know, it just everything under the sun is called racism. And then what people who don't really understand what's happening is they're like, Oh, well the social justice swears, they'll just call anything racist because that's, that's just what they love to do. And then they just discount the whole movement and the whole effort to raise awareness about this. So I think, you know, we need to use more precise terms. All right. Well, th- I've been talking for an hour, so that is it. It is 1 a.m. in the morning. I often do this. At the end of the day, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go because I'm a night person. And I'm like, you know, let's let's record some podcasts. And I got a whole slew of patron emails. I talk to myself in this weird accent. I got a whole slew of emails from patrons that I, that they're, you know, they want answers to, and I feel bad that I, I've backlogged them, and I need to get to them. And um, you know, am I going to watch Netflix or am I going to record a podcast? And so um, lately, I've been I've been choosing uh, column B instead of column A. The weird thing is, is that my brain at one a.m., although I feel somewhat sharp, it's not exactly as sharp as it could be. And so, weird words come out of my mouth. I have weird trains of thought, so I hope to God this episode made sense and wasn't a complete rambling mess. You could probably help me out by reassuring me um, below. (laughs) Um, But if it was a rambling mess, by all means, let me know that too, because maybe I shouldn't be recording podcasts at 1 a.m. in the morning when I have to work in the morning. All right, people, you're the best. You care about others. You would not listen to this podcast if you weren't, you know, one of the good ones, um, because uh, I just I, I just can't imagine anyone enduring this podcast if they didn't have true compassion for other human beings. So if I might inspire you, um, you know, get a pen and paper and write down one very compassionate thing you can do today. If you're a therapist, maybe it's like amping up your compassion for one particular client, being a little bit more communicative about your your compassion and warmth towards one of your clients. If you're not a therapist, maybe it's that friend that you felt like you you know weren't nice to the other day and you want to reach out and say, hey, I love you and I'm sorry for what I did the other day. Maybe it's a family member you haven't talked to in a while. Uh, Maybe it's yourself. Maybe you need to have compassion for yourself that, you know what? You're okay. People like you. You're human. You make mistakes. That's fine. We all fuck up. We all have rambly podcasts every now and then. Um, One shouldn't uh, beat themselves up for that. We're all doing our best, um, aside from the sadists, and I'm sure they're not listening to this podcast. So, out there, please take care of yourself and others. Amp up your compassion uh, a tick and have a great day (laughs) or evening or afternoon or whatever the hell time it is in, in your zone right now.